Sentire Media. Today, the 8th of March 2021, we celebrate International Women's Day. We do this with the realization that in Italy, as in many countries, some progress has been made, but the road ahead is a long, winding, difficult one, with situations such as pay equality, representation, and violence against women still representing a daily emergency. To commemorate this day, I spoke to author Jennifer Anton about her book, Under the Light of the Italian Moon, a story of one woman's struggle in one of Italy's darkest times, the rise of fascism and the Second World War. Senza avere dubbi da affrontare, senza una verità da conquistare, questo è il giusto modo di sbagliare. So, Jennifer, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. It's great to be here. Thank uh, it's you. A, it's a pleasure to have you. So, first of all, when we talk about books, the most obvious question is, what is this book about? Under the Light of the Italian Moon is a story of love and women's resilience during the rise of fascism and World War II. And it tells the story of Nina Argenta. She's the daughter of a strong-willed Italian midwife, and she helps the women of Fonzazo along with her mother during World War I, during the rise of fascism, and then she is in Italy for the Nazi occupation. And she falls in love with a boy when she's quite young who is immigrating to America. His name is Pietro Pante. And they're separated for a long amount of time while he works in the coal mines of America while she stays in Italy. And ultimately during World War II, they actually lose touch and she has to survive the escalating Nazi atrocities of the occupation in her town, hoping to be able to be reunited with him. Now, the book comes from the personal experiences of your family and some of the stories you heard from them and some of the research you've done. But when did you actually have the idea and when did you think this has to become a book? <laughs> well, you know, for me, 2006 was a was a sort of tumultuous year. I was pregnant with my daughter and I was very close to my grandmother and I had a whole stack of questions that I wanted to ask her about her life growing up in Italy that I had, I had heard. She had told me some of the stories when I was in high school, but when I was pregnant with my daughter, that for some reason became the time that I wanted to get the answers. And unfortunately, after my baby shower, she went into the hospital and she didn't leave the hospital. And I ended up going in having a C-section and I went into heart failure myself. When I recovered, my grandmother ended up passing away. And this was all within a 17-day time period. So it was really that, that mix of that moment where you see motherhood and womanhood all coming together. My grandmother dying, my daughter coming into the world, my mother trying to take care of us all. And when I saw all of that happen, it really created this obsession to research and understand my grandmother's life in Italy. And also just what was behind the fierceness 
of, of the strength that I saw in my mother during that time period, taking care of us all, you know, where did that come from? Because she was quite a soft, you know, kind of, you know, mild natured woman all my life that I saw my mom. And then I started to realize, I started to see something different even in her. And so that, that kind of kicked off the research and trying to figure out how can I get the answer to all these questions that my grandmother was never able to answer for me. Yeah, I think that kind of experience really helps you to see the people who are close to you in a different light sometimes. It's really an important experience to go through. Yeah. Without revealing anything, uh, for those who have read or are going to read the book, we're talking non-Alasia here. Uh, it's a it's a combination because what ends up happening is I went when I started researching into my grandmother's life, it was natural for me to go into my great grandmother's life and my great great grandmother's okay. life. So I it, this book is really en- ended up being a bit more of even a family saga. So the main character is Ni- Nina Argenta, mm-hmm. who is my great grandmother, but we end up seeing the lives of her mother, who's the very strong midwife Adelaja de la Santa, and then eventually her children and her daughters as well. So we really just like what I talked about, we really start to see in the book, you know, someone going from being a young girl to, you know, coming of age and becoming a woman and then eventually becoming a mother herself. So you've mentioned all of these stories, your great grandmother, your grandmother, her sisters and so on. So how much of the novel is the stories you heard? How much of it is uh, your own creativity? It's really a combination. Um, So I made this book, I ended up choosing this book to be biographical fiction. And it was it was difficult. When I first started, I didn't know what what I was doing. I was just researching. So I was interviewing people all over the world. I was interviewing people who were from Fonzaso, where this takes place, who had moved and immigrated to the States and to Canada. I interviewed four people who had done that. And then I interviewed four in Italy who had remained. And then all of those stories, it's interesting because you start to hear some of the same stories from different points of view. Um, You start to hear similar things about the characteristics of certain people and so forth. So you start to build that in your head. And I really was collecting all of that the whole time. And then underneath it, again, this was over a 14 year period. I was reading a lot of nonfiction, a lot of historical books about the time especially about women in, under fascism and, and not just historical books, but also a lot of fiction about the time. So a lot of uh, Bassani and Moravia to really get a feeling for, you know, what was going through the mindsets of the people during the time. And then Robin Pickering Yatsi has this fabulous book that she translated all these stories that women had written during fascism. And so that was just a good sense check to feel, you know, the, the, the way that I'm writing this narrative, the way that I'm thinking of the reasons why people chose to do these certain things that led into these different stories and these different activities. Are they, is this realistic? Is this authentic? Would they maybe be thinking like that? Because those are the things that you can't find in the history books. And sometimes you can't even find out from the stories. You have to put together, how did one thing relate to the next? What was going through someone's mind to make them do X or or Y? So, um, So the majority of it though comes from either a story I was told or some seed of a story or some seed of, of a, a fact about some of the people and then woven together with kind of this this thread of, of imagination. Okay, so this is the reason why you, you felt you needed to tell this story. But when you were writing, was there sort of a target audience or someone particular in mind that you were thinking, I have to tell this story and I have to tell it to this particular group of people? 
You know, I, I actually am a marketer in my in my <laughs> day job and in, in that life. So that's always a question you're always asking, you know, who is this going to? But that's not how I wrote the book. The book, you know, I've always loved, I've loved writing since I was young and I've loved reading since I was young. So I always, I always sort of ended up towards historical fiction, you know, Laura Ingalls Wilder and I loved all the Anne of Green Gable books, but what book really had the biggest impact on me was Gone with the Wind, mm -hmm. which is historical fiction, Margaret Mitchell. And the key, and I read that when I was very young, I was probably in, in fifth or sixth grade. I was very young, but what, what I took away from that was a feeling. And that feeling was a feeling of hope. It was a feeling of, there was, there was a love story, which I really enjoyed. And then there was this feeling of, of strong women and, that gave me this feeling of resilience. So for me, it was more about creating that feeling with my book. I knew I wanted to replicate. I wanted a love story. And there was a love story already there to be told be, between Nina and Pietro. And I wanted to make sure that it gave people hope and also made women believe in their own resilience when they see the resilience of other women and what they've lived through. And that was all there. So it was just a matter of bringing that, that feeling across and, and hopefully achieving that when people read the book. Great. So the book takes place in the real town of Fonzaso. Uh, just to give listeners some context, we're talking province of Belluno, correct? Uh, That's Jennifer, right. Yeah? Which is sort of northeast of uh, Italy. And basically that area would have perhaps gotten the worst of the Nazi occupation because obviously the further south one lived during the war in Italy, that the sooner they were liberated by the Allies, helped by the by the partisans. So obviously you, you, you've visited Fonzaso, you've spoken to people there. What is the village like today? The village, it ha <laughs> well, it's it's technically a city because, and, and the people of Fonzaso would expect you to call it a city, be even though it's very small. And the reason is, is that after World War One, because it was hit very hard by World War One as well, because of course, you know, the Austrians had occupied during that time. And that was very difficult because it's it's right up against the mountains. So afterwards, the king deemed it a city and they like to you know, make sure that they make it very clear that this is a city. In the book, I call it a town because it's misleading because it's so small to call it a city. But the, it, the town is very similar to what it would have been then. So all the cobblestone streets, the chiesa, the campanile, and up in the mountainside is a small watch house and a church that looks over the town that's been there for, for centuries. And that's all still there. And there's a lot of also plaques and commemorations, of course, to the Nazi atrocities that happened. And you're exactly right. I mean, being up in the mountains there, they had the issue that Mussolini, after he was basically denounced and, and, and stepped in completely with the Nazis and they created the Republic of Salo, that was all in that region. And yeah. so it was this confusing time of, okay, the Germans are coming in, but they're acting as though they're friendly. And there was all this propaganda that they were friendly. And I heard stories of some friendly, you know, Germans that were in the town. But on the flip side, they're not there to be friendly. And as soon as the partisans started uprising, the Represalia Tedesca began, and you saw for every one German that was killed by the partisans, 10 Italian civilians were killed. And that was hugely impactful in that town because unfortunately, with, you know, with all the partisans that were there who, who, were, who were fighting, it meant that it was going to have repercussions for the, for the everyday people as well. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah, definitely. And we can replicate that for many, many northern Italian towns. So for all of you that will read this book out today, uh, you can imagine this sort of situation being repeated over and over in many different areas, unfortunately. 
Great. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I would just add to that being Italian American, there are so many immigrants who are connected to stories like this. And as I have started sharing early copies of the book with, with select people around the world, there's people in Australia who've left Italy, there's people uh, in Argentina, there's a lot of uh, people in Canada and the US. And many of them have similar stories of relatives being separate, separated for long amounts of time, losing touch, and also the Nazi atrocities happening there. But I think, I think sometimes we look at black and white photos and we, we erase all the emotion out of them. You, you think you look at a black and white photo and you think, oh, well, you know, they were devoid of emotions and they, they were just stronger back then. But they had emotions. They had loves. They had fears. They, they, were, they were just like us. They were just put in these incredible, dif- incredibly difficult times. So I, I hope that what the book does is, and, and I've heard this from some people, that it reminds them of their own family and it makes them want to look into their own family more, which really makes me so happy. And I, and I really hope that that's one of the outcomes of the book. Absolutely. I, I can confirm that myself because, you know, as I was reading, for example, my family after the war left for not, not North America, but South America, my father's family. Uh, I had uh, grandmothers and relatives who had stories about some of the atrocities, but also stories about some of the kindness, maybe, of, of the rich. For example, one rather touching story my grandmother always used to tell me was, you know, the retreating Germans because she, she worked in and her family owned an, a locanda, an inn. And she has the story of the retreating Germans going to have a meal and then saying to her, you know, don't worry about us. We can't hurt you anymore. We are kaput. We're, we're, <laughs> we're going to die. So uh, very different stories. And, and I, I really think the book is particularly important for that reason, because those voices are, are, are being lost. You know, every day we lose more and more of these real first-hand voices and so a book like this which sort of really makes you feel those emotions and you know as as a macho Italian I shouldn't be saying this but there were a couple of times in which I did tear up and I had to pretend you know something was in my eye so I think it's very very important that um, that, that book goes and recollects the, the emotions behind those black and white photos so thank you very much for that as well I think that was very important. Okay so Jennifer you've already answered this question in part um, because you mentioned that you'd Uh, read a bit of Moravia, a bit of Bassani, and also the author that you mentioned, uh, Robin Pickering-Yazzi, which I'd like to hear more about. So tell me something about the sources that you used for the book. Sure. Uh, let me let me start from the beginning. So as I mentioned, first-hand accounts were, were where I started for people outside of Italy that had moved to uh, Canada and to the U.S., and then for people who were still there, so sort of those who left and those who stayed. Then a lot of visits to Italy. So going through the church records, that was a gold mine, sitting down with the priest. And, <laughs> and he was so happy to show me everything and let me take pictures of everything. And he was, I think, almost in tears one day as we were going through. He was so excited. The Municipio, and you know, they're they're a little bit harder to get information out of, but they were helpful as well. And then, you know, any various family members, they were sending me documents all throughout the time. And at, at one point, one of the family members, and I, I imagined that my great grandfather, my great, great grandfather was a a fascist. Imagine that he was a card carrying fascist anyway, but I didn't realize the impact that it had on him because there was actually a poster that was sent to me with a picture of Mussolini and the manifesto underneath it. And his photo was kind of three in underneath this. So that was a bit of a a shock to me to think, okay, so this midwife that was my great, great grandmother, professionally trained in Padova, she was then married to somebody who was 
quite an excited fascist in the town. So that dynamic was quite interesting to learn as, as I went through and, and got research and started telling family members I was learning. But visiting the cemetery, Ellis Island records, exhibitions at the University of Padova, all of that were some, were some of sort of the primary things that I did. And then from a secondary perspective, a lot of nonfiction. So the most important one for me was Victoria de Grazia's How Fascism Rolled Women. Mm -hmm. And then probably Perry Wilson's Masai Rurali, as well as Richard Bosworth's books about Mussolini and Richard Lamb's book, A Brutal War, which goes through all the detail. And then quite a few PhD dissertations. So Jennifer Kosman did one on midwives in Italy, and that was massively helpful to understanding the ins and outs of, of midwifery in Italy during this time. Secondary research right wise, Bassani, Moravia, you're exactly right. But Robin Pickering Yatsi had a fantastic book called Unspeakable Women. And it's translations of stories of women under fascism. So that was just wonderful because actually from a woman's point of view, somebody who was living during that time, writing fiction and being able to hear what their lives were like from their point of view was very helpful me, for me to understand what these women were thinking, their mindset, and just comparing it to, to modern day mindsets. And then, of course, movies like Two Women with Sofia Loren, which was also by Moravia and La Notte di San Lorenzo or The Night of Shooting Stars, Milena, those, those movies. There's basically in 14 years, there's nothing that I haven't gravitated towards that isn't about this time and specifically anything I could find about women and Mussolini. <laughs> so speaking of Mussolini, the without obviously giving anything away, the book does talk about some of the atrocities of the fascists and, and the Nazis. And one of them is definitely one of the documented ones near the city at this point. We don't want to insult those of Fonsazzo calling it a town. So near the city of yep. Fonsazzo. What about the other uh, events uh, tied to the Nazis and fascists in the book? Mm -hmm. So most of those did come from stories that I was told. I didn't know because, you know, children and adults witnessed a lot during this time period. They witnessed hangings. They witnessed shootings. It was it was everywhere. It was happening all the time. And so the people who I met with, and it was hard to, to ask the question of these people, and you could tell they didn't, you know, they, they don't enjoy going back to that moment and those moments, but they did tell me these stories. And then what I was able to do, and I would encourage any of your readers who are interested in this, especially ones with Italian ancestry, there is online, and we, I can give it to you so that you can include it, but there's an atlas of fascist and Nazi atrocities. I don't know if you've ever seen yeah, it. Yeah, I you saw it thanks to you. Yeah, in. when, we were, when yeah. we were exchanging emails, you mentioned it, and I had a look at it, and that's really an amazing piece of work. Yeah, it's amazing. So what I was able to do then was look at the descriptions of all of those things that were happening, compare those to the stories that I was told and kind of line up which ones of those might have been, you know, around the time or or about the time that I had heard them about. So so that's how I kind of wove those wove those in. So they were definitely happening, if not exactly as I described them, then they were happening at that time in the town. Great. So you mentioned before that the, the and, you, and just now that the book comes from many stories of different people and different sources. Is uh, Jennifer Anton somewhere in this novel, in one of the characters, in different characters? <laughs> Are you in there somewhere? <laughs> well, you know, I, I wrote this book over a 14 year period and even, I even started thinking of, of this book of the research when I was in high school. So over 14 years, you know, when I first started writing the book, I was 29 years old. I was pregnant. I didn't know what it was to be a mother. I didn't know what it be, was to be a wife and 
a sister and a daughter throughout the process of all the different stages of motherhood as your child gets older. And that's obviously in the 14 years of writing this book, all of those experiences have been things that I've gone through and seen friends and, and other people going through. So, so of course that, that does end up going into the book. Absolutely. You know, those firsthand experiences, those feelings, both positive and negative, making their way in. And as you think of, you know, what, what logically would have this person been going through or feeling after this amount of time away from their husband, et cetera, et cetera. So yes, there's, there's certainly that element. And remember these, these stories are about my, my ancestors. So their blood runs through me, my blood runs into this book. It's, it's really, you know, it's very connected obviously, but Interestingly, I ended up, and this was just by chance, I ended up finishing this book while I was 43 years old, which I still am right now. I'll, I'll turn uh, 44 in April. But my main character was also 43 years old at the end of the book. So that I don't know if, why that happened, but, but it happened to finish. I finished the book and she ended the book at 43 years old. Oh. Okay, so uh, you mentioned, uh, Jennifer, that you know, the blood of your ancestors runs in your veins uh, and uh, then your blood was poured into this book. You are an um, Italian-American or an American-Italian. And so how do you feel the connection with, with the motherland, with the homeland? And how, how is life as an Italian-American in the States and in London where you live now? Oh, that's a that's a really good question. I mean, growing up, I, I had no idea that was that I was the granddaughter of an immigrant. I didn't think about that. My grandmother, she had pretty much lost her accent. I would hear her on the phone from time to time with Italy, but she didn't teach us Italian. She didn't teach my mother Italian. The Italianness came through the culture of the food, through the the reprimands, you know, basta, basta, <laughs> yes, and you know, word. the threat on the culo and all of that with the wooden spoon, that that came through. And I knew that I was, my, my grandmother and my grandfather were Italian, but I did not consider myself Italian. I considered myself American as a kid. However, as I got older and started learning more about it, obviously I felt more connected to my roots. And then certainly after I started, the first time I went to Italy, I. I, it just felt like I, I belonged there in some way. I don't know how to describe it, but I've, I've heard other people say the same thing. <laughs> some not even Italian, but certainly, you know, I do feel a strong connection. And, and what's beautiful about the whole thing really for me, and again, one of the gifts of this book is, as I mentioned, I interviewed those who left and those who stayed. And those who left, my grandmother's generation was really the connection back. You know, their kids didn't speak Italian and they really didn't know anyone who was in Italy anymore. And then you have the people who stayed and their kids didn't speak English and their families really never went to America. So there was this possibility of really losing that connection as the generations start to, to move on and, and, and to disappear. And I think what's been a real gift is connecting back to my heritage, to my Italian heritage and and reconnecting and getting to know a lot of the family members abroad and then now with this book keeping and maybe even creating this uh, new identity for for the other cousins back in in the states so yeah bringing bringing the the italianness back to your family you can say in a certain sense actually it, it's, yeah. it's lovely that you mentioned also the wooden spoon and the cool or the bum because uh, <laughs> another you know another Going back to what you said before about reminding people of their own memories, my um, my father has memories of his grandmother. So in your book, there's one of the main characters, Adelazia, is called La Capitana, so the captain. Mm -hmm. And my great-grandmother, or great-great-whatever, she, she was known as the Generalessa, the, the general. <laughs> 
And uh, my father often told me stories about being told, and, and he was a very naughty boy, and nobody could really control him except for this generalessa. <laughs> and, he, and I would hear stories of him being sent up to his room to wait for her with his pants down, with his bum up in the air so she can go and spank him. So I, I totally get. <laughs> yes, we have these things in common. And, you know, these strong women, I mean, they were they were just absolute forces, you know, and uh, it, it's incredible. But they, they were the matriarchs of the family, but they had the capacity, such a capacity to lead and certainly certainly the capacity to instill fear in their children. Didn't they? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes. Also, my, my grandmother was a lot softer, my nonna, but, you know, she had some of that streak in her sometimes. You could see it come through. So definitely. Um, so speaking of kuli, which are bombs and, and wooden spoons, and there, there's a lot of Italian in the book. And indeed, for those of you who are definitely going to buy it, because you must, if you are struggling a bit, there is a glossary at the end. So you can go and look mm -hmm. up some of those words. What was behind the decision to include so much Italian? Why, why did you decide to put those words in maybe rather than others? What was the logic behind that? I think that's a, that's a really great question. I've not been asked that question before, but but I did think about that. So when I, when I was writing this book, anytime I would sit down and close the door and write this book, I wasn't wherever I I was. I unless I was in Italy, I was I was in Italy. Even if I was in London writing it, even if I you know was traveling while I was writing it, I was in it, while I was writing this on the page. I was in Italy, and I don't speak Italian very well. I've studied it since before we moved to Italy in 2012, but I have a decent vocabulary in Italian. And as I was writing, as I was writing the inter internal dialogue, as I was writing the external dialogue, there were just points where it came naturally in my mind to to put it in. And of course, at certain times in the reality, some of these people would have been speaking dialect. Sometimes they would have been speaking proper Italian, but I, I put it in while I was writing it. And then I had to think and, and talk to my publisher about, is this a good choice to leave it in? Because I think a lot of books that are about different countries and are written in English, they, they wash out all of the, except the most basic, basic Italian or French or, or what have you. And that felt really wrong to me to, to pull it out. It, it, you know, part of an important part of the culture is is language. And certainly I moved abroad from the US to Italy and just to, to live kind of internationally because I wanted to be comfortable and I wanted my daughter to be comfortable being uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, yeah. we, we make it so easy for people. And, and I, I thought, you know, in the context of this book, you can you can understand, you might not, not understand specifically, but in the context, you can understand what's being said. And it gives you that flavor and that feeling for where you are. When I read a book and there's no Italian in it, it's about Italy. I I don't, I feel like I could be anywhere. And so it was really important to leave it in. And then I read a few books by Mary Contini. She is a, a wonderful writer and she writes about her family in Italy. She's a Scottish writer and she had just as much Italian as I had in my book. And I thought, okay, I really enjoyed her way of, of writing and, and also the fact that she left all that Italian in. And I thought, okay, if she did it, I'm, I can do it too. And I, and I, I decided with my publisher to leave it in. And so uh, I'm really happy with that choice. Yeah, I think it was. Well, also there are, as, as I think you mentioned at a certain point, there are certain words that 
they just work so well. And like the word basta, which means enough, but it's more than enough. You know, it means enough. You've had, you've annoyed me. Now it's time to be quiet. And, you know, I speak yeah. English to my children, but that word basta is just so useful sometimes. So, uh, you, you, <laughs> it's, it's a... and there's some beautiful, you know, there's some beautiful words too, that I think Americans or anyone who's, who's English reading this book, people in the UK, Australia, you know, un copo di fumine. Mm, yeah. I just love that. You know, the lightning bolt that you feel that, that love at first sight, that feeling. I, I love that term. And I like introducing that term to people. So uh, in bocca lupo, I mean, obviously, anybody who speaks Italian, that's a very common phrase, but people don't know that. And so if, if somebody can learn a little Italian, I think that's, that's a, a fun thing. And it gives them the flavor for for where they are when they're reading the novel. And hey, we can't travel right now. So at least you can open a book and, 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 and go that. somewhere. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely, I mean, we could talk for hours about that because there are certain expressions and words which mean whole concept. Like an, another that <laughs> comes to mind straight away is fare la scarpetta, uh, w- yes. which means basically to when you've finished eating your pasta or whatever leaves sauce in your plate, you take a piece of bread and you mop it up and eat the bread <laughs> with the sauce. And, and that's, you know, just a little expression like that works. So, so well. So, I, so beautiful. Yeah, yeah that's beautiful. Absolutely. So coming to one of the, the important central themes of the book, um, the situation for women obviously has improved uh, since the Second World War, but we still have a long, long way to go. Uh, the situation is not where it should be. Italy, as is often the case, is still behind other countries such as the US and the United Kingdom as far as uh, equality, women's rights is. So... Jennifer, what sort of lessons do you think we can draw from your novel in the struggle that we have ahead? Yeah, so I mean, this is this is very important to me in terms of, you know, looking back at history to see how we can impact the future. And if I look at what you know, Mussolini did and what, what he ended up putting in place. So all of these things to, to control women and to encourage them to have more babies, to really put them back in the house, make sure that they were having as many babies as they possibly could, taking away education about contraception, taking away, you know, anything about the, their rights, whether it came to learning about their, their bodies and, and how to control pregnancies or abortions, et cetera. They, he really just just pulled that all away and and certainly you know moving with the the idea of the vote just became completely moot because you know he was he was a dictator so the vote didn't matter uh, whether it was male or female really he was just it, it was him but I think the the real concern here is that because they didn't have equality then they didn't have a seat at the table and so they had to watch their husbands and their sons these babies as they grew up die in in their in the wars that he ended up getting them into. And I think that this is a problem that we still see today because we don't have women in leadership in organizations. We don't have enough people at the C level, at the board level in organizations. We don't have enough equality in government around the world. And so we will see history repeating itself because, you know, we don't have a, a diverse amount of thinking. So one of the big concepts of the book is this concept that women create and men destroy but women are the ones who are erased and men are the ones who are remembered. And if we think about the midwives, they're, they're bringing babies, they're helping women give birth to children and bring children into the world. And in the meantime, the men are getting Italy involved in all of these things that are killing the people. 
And, you know, it's very, I think it's, it's very important to realize today that we actually, we've progressed and we can celebrate some of that, but then we celebrate and move on because we are nowhere near where we need to be. And especially with what we're seeing right now, we're, we're regressing in some ways. I've just seen some numbers on unemployment in the U.S. and we're seeing that women are actually being more impacted than men when it comes to uh, losing their jobs, which means all this progress that we've made getting women back into the workforce. We're now seeing that regression as women start to, again, take on that non-paid labor in the home, take on the emotional labor and the social labor in the home. So we take some steps forward and then we take some big steps back. Absolutely. And I think Absolutely. it's it's concerning. So I do hope, you know, there is actually at my website, jenniferanton.com, there is a d discussion guide that anyone who reads the book can get for free. They can download it. And there are some really provocative questions that I would love to see women and men around the world sitting around having a glass of wine, a cup of, co a cup of coffee and having these conversations together from a very different point of view. Yeah, I think it's very important also that you mentioned that, you know, men and women have to sit down and think about this because the fight for women's rights can't just be a fight that women uh, have the responsibility for. Absolutely. So we also, you know, the, 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 ma the male side of the population needs to sit down and think, you know, what do I accept from my, what kind of language do I accept from my friends and what do I laugh mm -hmm. at and so on. So I think that's, that's absolutely a very important point to, to think about, definitely. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I hope this book helps spark those conversations. And then, you know, again, it makes these these women's lives even even more worthwhile, because ultimately, we're still learning from them. And we are remembering them. And we are. And the other thing I really hope people do men and women, I hope that they sit down with the women in their lives, their nanas, especially right now with COVID, you know, calling the elderly and asking them about their lives before they were mothers. You know, tell me about what, what you were like as a child. Tell me about, you know, how you, you met uh, Nona. All of that, those questions, I think are things that we, we just think we have all the time in the world to ask. And, you know, in the situation that I dealt with, I found out that that's not the case. And so I would love to encourage people, especially during COVID, especially when we're losing a lot of elderly, now's a really good time to pick up the phone, you know, have some questions and just listen. And maybe even and record them, answers. you know, it'd be nice to yeah. have their voices and then be able to listen to them again. So somebody might be interested in writing a book about it <laughs> exactly. later. Maybe you maybe, you know, your child might end up doing that. You don't know. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Jennifer Anton, I must say, I am not a literary critic, so the only uh, measure I have is that I really enjoyed the book. I looked forward to reading it and I binged through it, especially the last <laughs> part when I was wanting to know how it ended up. I won't reveal anything. Uh, my poor family were actually sent away because I, I had to absolutely send the book. So I, I didn't want to be disturbed. So I really recommend that my listeners uh, get their copy out today under the light of the Italian moon uh, out today, 8th of March. Uh, Jennifer, tell us where, how, and uh, some of the other things like your website that you'd like to mention again, where we can also get other important content. Sure. Well, it, it will be available on Amazon uh, and barnesandnoble.com in the US, bookshop.org as well. I love the idea of anyone calling up their independent bookstore and, and ordering it or ordering it from bookshop.org, which buys through the independents. Those, those small businesses could really use a lot of a lot of help right now. So, so yeah, you could do Amazon, Barnes and Noble, but the little guys also could really use some help. So give them some love and you can go to jenniferanton.com. And like I said, you can watch the, the book trailer there. You can get a lot of pictures of, of the town and uh, follow me on bold woman writing at Instagram. And uh, I share a lot of information and pictures there as well. 
Jennifer, thank you very much again for coming and telling us about this great book. Thank you so much. It was great to be here. I really appreciate it. Grazie. Prego, prego. Grazie a te. Thanks very much to everyone for listening to the interview with Jennifer Anton about her book, Under the Light of the Italian Moon. All the information given in the interview you can find in the show notes. Thanks very much to everyone for listening, in particular my super Patreon supporters, starting from the second part of the Marguerite Hack and Galileo Galilei level, and that is Kevin, Mark P., Marxist-Leninist Sicilian, Mella, Mike M., Neville, Paradise, Patrizia Kappa, Roberta D., Rod L., Rodney N., The Question Master, Rudy F., Sam, Scott L., Sean M., Shelby, Stephen, and TO5, and of course, the tippy-top level, Maria Montessori and Dante Alighieri, Paolo, Lisa K., JW, Andrew M., Brandon S., Maxime, David, Peter W., Kevin O., David L., Renat M., and Sen. Remember, if you are so inclined, you can get in touch. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com with thoughts and considerations and questions and deep existential doubts or whatever you would like to share. You can, at the same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com, click through to our social media, consult timelines, maps and bibliographies, or do whatever you would like on the site. You can also go to our support page and support via PayPal or become a Patreon supporter and have access to extra content. Until next time, thanks so much to everyone for listening and Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy.
With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.